Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. He said, let me tell you something, Larry. Well, I got it figured. I'm in control of the stern wheel, the gas pedal, and the clutch pedal. You can't afford to keep me. When we were racing and we went to a speed race, you had to contend with the number four car. I went through a period of time when, when I went to jail. I made it through that period of time because I had faith. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. And Steve, I have not kept track, but we have been doing our podcast remotely for the last 
what, two or three months, two, two and a half months? Oh, at least, at least, yeah. <laughs> We've only met each other in that time span one time, and that was to go visit Jim Reans. Otherwise, yes. it's been computer screen to computer screen. <laughs> we tried a couple of different platforms, and they didn't exactly work the way that we wanted them to, but we have since moved to Zoom, and I am truly happy with the way that Zoom is working out. If nothing else, it saves us a lot of time because it was, what is it? It's probably an hour, 10, 15 minutes yeah, from my house to your house. Yeah. So that saved two, two and a half hours at least. And then it saves all the setup time and, and all that. Obviously, we don't get to visit in person. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you're crushed about that. <laughs> but if anything good has come out of this whole craziness with the COVID-19 and quarantine and all that, this technology, this platform, Zoom, has been a godsend. I really enjoy doing it this way. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, really a technological marvel. But you touched on the uh, virus thing. You know, we're always told to, to stay in as much as we can and so forth and so on outside. You wear masks out. Well, this allows us to follow the rules for the virus because we stay in and we don't get outside. And as a result of that, we can still do the podcast with, uh, gosh, a neat platform. Well, another thing that it has done, it has allowed us to keep doing this podcast throughout the quarantine and hopefully maybe sort of, kind of, giving our listeners something to look forward to each week. Yeah, I think you're right. And after all, Rick, when all this is said and done, the most important thing is that Zoom allows us to continue Virus or no virus, <laughs> and I hope the listeners really like the results. Steve, this week we are going to finish up our conversation with Larry McClure, and in this week's installment, he discusses <laughs> he discusses Ernie Irvin's not so pleasant departure from Morgan McClure Motorsports. Yeah, not so pleasant to say the least. <laughs> he talks about Sterling Marlin's two consecutive Daytona 500 wins the team struggles to remain in the sport. And finally, Steve, he does talk about his own struggles with the law. And Steve, he actually did do some jail time. Yes, he did. He had to pay the price for what he did. I respect that. I, I respect too. that a lot, that he actually too. did have the courage and the faith in us and the trust in us to talk about it. Yeah, you know, I think that's a very noble thing to stand up and admit what you did and tell the world about how you felt about it. I think Larry is very upstanding in all of this. Then in our second segment, we are going to go back to the September 9th, 1993 issue of Winston Cup Scene. Mark Martin, that year, at that time of the season, was on an amazing hot streak. Oh, yeah. Over two separate series, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, sir. He scored his fourth straight Winston Cup victory in the Southern 500 at Darlington. He scored his second Bush Series victory in as many starts for him. It wasn't consecutive races on the schedule, but it was two straight starts for him that he had won. And then, Steve, this issue also covers Ernie's move from Morgan McClure Motorsports to Robert Yates Racing. And to say that that move was huge is a just a horrible understatement. Oh, absolutely. 
Now, back then, I don't think any of us in the media ever thought that Ernie Irvin would go to Robbie Yates Racing and be Davey Allison's replacement. He was not high on everybody's rumor list, as I recall. He was not, but evidently he was on Robert Yates's list, and yeah. that move sent shockwaves through that garage. Absolutely. Also this week, we have a new Patreon support from Robin Scarberry and Trey Campbell. So, Robin, Trey, thank you. Thank you for your help. Yes. Without you, this would not be possible at all. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much. Support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, support QWare, support Brian Kelb. Together, we have been able to produce the podcast that you hopefully enjoy every week. We have certainly made it a point to bring it to you each week throughout this whole COVID thing and hopefully give you some entertainment and some enjoyment through times that are certainly uncertain for a lot of people. If you can, please consider supporting us on a monthly basis via patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Seambot podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. You go through 1992 and you win three races. 1993, Ernie wins again at Talladega. But then Davey Allison loses his life in a helicopter crash. How did you find out that Ernie was wanting to move over to Robert Yates? Well, first off, uh, after Davey uh, crashed, we contacted uh, the 28 now and offered any help that we that we might have uh, since they'd lost uh, their driver. And uh, I didn't hear anything right then, but uh, uh, Jack Roush called me and he said, uh, I hear rumblings that through Ford that uh, the 28 is after your driver. You know anything about that? I said, no, because Jack and I were pretty good buddies. And, and uh, um, when we got to Bristol, I asked Ernie. And he said, yep, yep, I'm going. I said, and you can't stop me. I said, what do you mean? I said, I got a five-year contract. He said, to you two years remaining he said well let me tell you something Larry well I got it figured I'm gonna control the stern wheel the gas pedal and the clutch pedal you can't afford to keep me and I'll show you and he did wow wow <laughs> yeah I mean there's, I mean you know I I was actually going to ask yeah you went to Michigan and the engine blows. You go to Bristol the next race, and the engine blows. And there was talk, and I, I was in the sport at that time, and I remember that there was talk that at least at Bristol, the engine might have been intentional. Well, it blew three engines that weekend. Wow. Of course, we changed the engine pretty fast, and people didn't know it. They At that time, yeah. you could qualify with one engine and right, race right. another yeah. engine, but it was three engines. Was that the last straw? Was that where you said, okay, yeah, listen. I've had enough. Yeah. Uh, if you want to go, just, just go. Yeah. That's it. And after that, he went to 28. After Bristol, if you look and see. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what happened. We were having a, actually having a meeting with my attorney down here in Avenue going over the contract with Ernie and, and of course, having that meeting telling him uh, we didn't want him to leave and we had a contract. And the contract didn't mean anything to him. And of course, the 28, uh, not 28 necessarily, but Texaco had a lot of money and Ford had a lot of money. And uh, Chevrolet wasn't that enthused, I guess, maybe, but keeping us. But uh, with us having success, like it, uh, well, even before Bristol, uh, I'm going to back up and tell you about that little story. Oldsmobile, we were sponsored by Oldsmobile when we had Rick. Well, at the end of that year, they told us they weren't going to sponsor us anymore. At the end of 90? That, at the end of 88. Okay. All right. Said, said we're not going to, we can't give you the same deal you've had with Rick. I said, okay. Well, I didn't have anything else. So if I wanted to keep racing, I, I didn't want to change sheet metal at that time. But... Uh, Chevrolet came right after we got Rick. Chevrolet came to us and said, "Well, we'd like, we'd love to have you run the Chevrolets," and we did. Wow! All right. Was Sterling your first choice for 1994, or were there others that were in the mix? You know, Ernie—not uh, Ernie, but uh, uh, Runt—had always liked him, and had always liked Sterling. Sterling, and it always and it worked with him some. And he liked the way he drove and that kind of thing. He liked his daddy, and he said, "You know, he's he runs good. He runs fast. He never has one, but he he runs good." I said, I, "Maybe somebody we need to look at." And he was probably the best driver that uh, we focused on. And and uh, I called. Uh, I actually called Chevrolet and told them I was going to hire him. And they said, "Well, we're not going to support that." And I said, "I said well." He's been with one of the best race teams for three years, and he hadn't won for junior. We said, "Well, we still want to, we still want to do that," and uh, we did it. So, and Magic, he won his first race. Yeah, he did. The week going into the Daytona 500 in 1994 was pretty tough. After we lost Neil Bonnet and Rodney Orr, what was the mindset of the team going into the 94 Daytona 500? As far as were we going to be cautious? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we weren't a very cautious bunch. And <laughs> we had, listen, with that aluminum, we had spent a lot of time in the wind tunnel, and, and uh, we knew our motors were pretty good, uh, if not the best. And uh, going into that, you know, we knew Ernie was going to be hard to beat because he was he was driving that 28 car and 28 car is pretty pretty sporty on the speedway so uh and ironically it came down to the last lap when we passed ernie i think uh going into three or coming off four or something we got him loose and we went on past him and won the race but uh we had confidence i mean it wasn't and our team didn't ever did have you couldn't say we had a lack of confidence after we had Ernie and Sterling and and, and that bunch. Um, but we were pretty confident that uh, we could we could finish good. We didn't know if we could win or not. And then God let us win that race. After everything that had gone on the year before with Ernie, 
what did it mean to you personally to win the 1994 Daytona 500? Well, you can say, well, you shouldn't feel one way or the other. I mean, uh, because he left us and, and then you beat him at the biggest race of the year. Probably it was a little satisfying to me because it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a uh, clean departure. I mean, there was some animosity between he and I. Yeah. Because I knew he had a contract and he knew he had a contract and that and uh, and and his sponsors knew he had a contract and and I almost I should have I mean I almost tried to do something about it but I decided not to. But it was it made us feel good that we. That we won that race, and uh, he just happened to be that other car after that. I mean, makes us feel pretty good. <laughs> that being said, Ernie did get hurt at Michigan that August. Was there ever a point where you maybe reached out to him to maybe mend your fences a little bit? Prior to that? Uh, prior to that or afterwards? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't ever did speak to him after he left us. Really? Until after until he wrecked. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and then he was in Michigan. We went over to the hospital, but uh, as as you know, most of the teams did. But uh, as far as uh, doing anything prior to that, no. And of course, after he's been here, you know, so we, we talk. Yeah. Okay. Starlin won the Daytona 500 again in 1995, and you guys finished third in points. How much of a difference was there in working with Sterling and working with Ernie, personality-wise? Sterling was more laid back. I mean, he was, I don't know, he, he was just easy to be around, a lot of fun to be around. Uh, we never did see Ernie during, we never saw Ernie. It was just business, business, business. We were dealing with Ernie. Of course, I'm sure he was staying busy doing PR and doing whatever he had to do with our sponsor and maybe his other sponsors he had, but uh, it's it a lot easier to work with Sterling. If we could ask him to do something, he'd, he'd work it out and do it for us. Uh, when in '95 was a was a pretty good story about that. Uh, right before, right before when the racetrack opened up in '95, Bill France was sitting in his trailer. Like he always did, and the cars would go by initially, and that four car went by, and it had a different sound to it. <laughs> and Bill, what in the hell have you done now? So, uh, I'll tell you that it was the easiest race to win. That uh, easiest race we won was '95, because everybody was beat. They was trying to figure out what we were doing. And whether it was the sound or whatever, but anyway, we uh, we enjoyed that win. Well, what were you doing? <laughs> we had a, well, we uh, right before that, right before the season. Of course, we were dyno testing twenty four hours a day. Had a guy call me from Salt Lake City. He said, "Larry, I've got a new exhaust system. I think it'll it'll help you three or four horsepower." So I worked out a deal with him that I, if I if I tried it and it helped, he wouldn't let anybody have it for a year. Because I, I, I it was his exhaust system. Right. He agreed to it. 
His name was Dr. Gas. And uh, he sent me that thing. We put it on, five horsepower, bam. And it and it was an X-pipe, and it made the car sound like an Indy car. And uh, I don't know if it was the amount of horsepower we had or what, but a lot of the other cars tried it, and their cars didn't sound like ours did. But uh, people, that, that race week, we had... Uh, from these sports magazines, we had them laying down and long-range cameras trying to <laughs> trying to see yeah. what we had under the car, but it was actually an exhaust system. 1995 was probably your best statistical season. You had three wins, had nine top fives, you had 22 top tens, you were third in points. After the humble beginnings that you'd had, what was it like to walk through that garage every week with your chest poked out a little bit or in walking tall a little bit what was it like to <laughs> be that competitive after being in the sport for well i don't think we were ever a team or, and i personally was never somebody that thought there was something when they weren't but I, I didn't but it felt so good it really felt good because we'd come from basically nothing right i mean really humble beginnings as humble as you could get and and, and you know during that time through through from that time to the time we ended up having success, a tremendous amount of people helped us. I can remember being in Charlotte, wrecking the car, blowing an engine, and going over to Kel Yarborough's shop, and their people help us fix the car and the motor and put it in, in race. I can remember uh, uh, loaning Rick Hendricks a motor to qualify with at Daldega. I mean, there's a lot of things happened during that time, but uh, I don't think we had many enemies. I don't think so. Everybody loved Tony. You know, everybody liked GC. You know, uh, and we didn't do any people wrong yeah. that I know of, you know. But being successful, you know, <laughs> it's a different feeling. And, and it's, you know, maybe uh, we should have, I should have given the good Lord more thanks for it when I was having all that success. Maybe I'd have had it up for a longer period, but uh, I sure did feel good. There was a pretty big drop-off in results between 1996 and 1997. No wins in 1997, just a couple of top fives, and Sterling fell all the way to 25th in points. Was there anything in particular that took place or that was going on Sure. Uh, I'll tell you what pretty much happened, if you can look at the demise of our team during that period. Uh, Felix decided uh, to uh, get my crew chief. He got Tony. And then he ended up with Sterling. And just taking taking people away, you know, taking, taking things away from us. I mean... NASCAR took a tremendous amount of things away from us that we'd come up with. We had a scavenge pump running on the rear end house, and then we had lines running everywhere. But it, but it was several horsepower. I mean, uh, we were always using trying to be ingenious. But you know, I think at, at about that time, along in there, people started taking advantage of having multi-car teams and and uh, having more engineering and having more money uh, uh, they listen if you got the most money 
it's just like this sport today. If you got the most money, you can buy the best driver. You can buy the best people. And more than likely, you're going to have more luck than somebody that can't do that. And I think that's maybe what happened to us. Um, but when Tony left us, that was a that was a big punch in the gut. And and I couldn't replace him. I didn't replace him. So that's kind of what happened. You won with Bobby Hamilton at Martinsville in the spring of 1998, and that turned out to be your last win right. as a team owner. Were you still pretty confident that you were going to be able to continue to be competitive, or did you get the sense that maybe the rotten was on the wall, that things weren't headed the way that you wanted them to? Well, I probably uh, wish I, it had hit me a little harder in the head that I could see that we weren't going to have much success. But we started going to speedway races, and uh, uh, maybe I had the two, two maybe I had the two best drivers for speedway, and lost both of them with Sterling and Ernie. Uh, Bobby was Bobby was a good speedway racer, uh, and he we were competitive with him, but we just didn't have what it took. You know, if I'd have been smarter, even down the road, if I'd have been smarter, and could say, "Hey, I'm a I'm a single car team," I think I I should have gone to Hendrix or somebody and, and rented engines. I could have cut my I could have cut my expenses quite a bit by doing that. But uh, being hard headed a little bit, you know, and. You'd like to have your own motor in your car when you win a race. I did at that time. It made it meant something to me. If I'd have been a little smarter, though, I'd have probably outsourced some of these things. And, you know, some engineering. You look at the teams now; they outsource pit crews, engines, <laughs> cars, yeah, yeah. everything. Yeah. So I should have been a little smarter. But being up here, single car team, I was that was probably a disadvantage for us. Your last several years in the sport, Kodak went away, and there were several drivers who saw time in your cars. How difficult was that for you personally? After having been on the mountaintop, what was it like to experience that? Well, it, it, it felt to me the same as it's felt to a lot of people. That high end bumping down those steps coming down that mountain top, <laughs> uh, you know, after yeah. being up there, it, it it really hurt. Uh, if I'd have been a little smarter, I thought we might have we we might could have carried on. But it got more difficult to make races. Uh, we had no engineering support. We had two three engineers here, but we just didn't listen. We had, we were fighting big odds, more odds than we were when we started out racing. It was harder and. I'm sure these people are finding that same thing out right now. How would you like for Morgan McClure Motorsports to be remembered? What's its legacy in the sport? Oh, Lord. Mm. I thought we were a good, honest bunch of people who worked hard, had to work harder and smarter uh, in order to win. Uh, I guess that's that's it. We got, you know... Uh, like I say, I wish I'd have given the good Lord more praise and glory for our success, but I didn't at that time, and I should have. A lot of things you, you know, a lot of things you'd like to have a, a, a do over. Yeah, yeah. But um, 
I don't, I don't, I guess just being a good, honest race team, uh, they worked hard. And I think when we were successful, we worked harder and were smarter than the other people. You know, this, just like multi-car teams, for years they fought each other instead of working together and making themselves stronger. And then all of a sudden they get smart enough to be able to do that. But, uh, I don't know. I think we were, we were probably, uh, a race team that when we were racing and we went to a speed race, you had to contend with the number four car. Larry, I, I don't know how to answer this question, but you did experience some things in the mid-2000s, and you had some legal issues, and they, it cost you personally. How difficult was it to go through that and how did you get through it to come out the other side and be the person that you are today? Well, uh, I think everybody does, does, does things wrong, and I don't know. You know, uh, I went through a, a period of time when, when I went to jail. Um, and, but I can tell you this. I made it through that period of time because I had faith. I never one time, not one, I'm telling you, not one time in 15 months did I ever worry about my wife or my family or my businesses, anything like that. I didn't. I turned it over to the good Lord and I said, I need help. I can't do it because I'm a wreck. And I have wrecked. So um, it makes me look, it makes me after going through that, it makes you look at everything different. All your priorities change. Uh, what was important to you one time is not anymore. Having things don't really make any difference to me. Uh, I, I, I hate that I had to put my family through that. But let me tell you, anybody can do it, and anybody that's in business can be in that same position. Um, like I say, I, I've admitted that I made mistakes. I've had to admit some things I didn't do, but still, at the same time, I felt like the strategy we used was the best for us. And and at the end of the day, my 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 wife uh, and my family relationship with my whole family uh, and most of my friends is stronger now than it was before. So. I didn't mind it in a way. It's a, it's something you had to do, but, um, or I had to do, but uh, I got through it fine, and I think I'm can look at things and I'm a better person uh, now than I was before because it gives it's a wake up call. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's a bong on the head, and uh, it happened. So. I'm, and like I said, I'm sorry for the probably being recognized in the sport of uh, Winston Cup racing or NASCAR. Uh, we would probably get more recognition now had I not had that not happened to me. Now, I don't know how people look at it, but I think that's probably I, because I haven't talked to any of those folks uh, ever, you know. But. 
anyway, we won 14 races. Nobody can't take that away from us. I'm proud of the people that worked on those race cars. I thank the Lord for us having that success. And I wouldn't change nothing. Hello, Scene Ball Podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn from QWare. I'm so glad that racing is back. It's nice to see it on TV. And of course, it's been nice to continue to be able to listen to the Scene Ball Podcast with Rick and Steve and all their guests. And of course, they just hit the milestone 100th podcast. And I'm so proud of what Rick and Steve have been able to do with the Scene Vault Podcast in preserving the history of this great sport. There's a lot of time and effort that goes into everything that happens at the Scene Vault Podcast. And at QWare, we are proud to be a part of it. We also know that it takes a lot of time and effort to take care of the places where you work. And we want you to check out QWare and see what we can do when it comes to facility maintenance. We are the most powerful, most simple to use computerized maintenance management system on the planet. So check us out at QWareCMMS.com and see what we can do for your facility maintenance team in helping to keep your campus and your facility up and running. Now let's get back to the podcast. When Davy Allison crashed his helicopter that terrible July day at Talladega Super Speedway, Morgan McClure Motorsports, according to Larry, reached out to Robert Yates Racing and offered to help out in any way that they could. And, and certainly, I don't think that they were the only ones in the sport. No, I know yeah. they weren't. Steve, when we talked to Larry McReynolds, he actually said that Felix Sabatis had offered the use of his plane to fly down mm-hmm. to Birmingham and go to the hospital and all that. Right. But when it comes to Morgan McClure Motorsports, <laughs> I'm not quite sure that that help meant turning over their driver. Well, I'm pretty darn <laughs> sure it didn't mean that. <laughs> Larry McClure got a call from Jack Roush, and Jack evidently said that he was hearing that the 28 team was going to go after Ernie Irvin to replace Davey. I have to wonder, what would Jack have to gain from letting Larry know about that? Was that just a general conversation thing? Now, here's my theory. Maybe he didn't want Ernie Irvin to drive for Robert Yates. Think about that. And so he calls Larry McClure in the hope that Larry can hold Ernie back, keep him away from Robert Yates by making him stick to his contract. Well, that's just a theory, but it is, you know, possible. Steve, I don't know. I, I don't know what there would have been to, to gain or not gain from letting that out well, of the bag. You know, Jack called Larry and told him that Ernie and Robert Yates were talking. He had to have a reason for it. And maybe he was just being a, a, a nice guy and say, hey, you know, you might want to watch your driver. He's talking to Robert Yates. If you're not aware of it, I'm going to make you aware of it. Maybe he's trying to play some kind of game where he can keep Ernie from going to Robert Yates. And by telling Larry what was going on, that was the way to do that. Just a theory. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, again, I don't know what was going on there. But when Larry told me about his conversation with Ernie, where Ernie told Larry that he was in control of the steering wheel, the gas pedal, and the clutch, and that Larry couldn't afford to keep him, I just about fell out of my seat. 
Yeah, it's hard to believe that a driver would tell a team owner that, but I think it's very indicative of how strongly Ernie wanted to go to Robert Yates Racing. Very much so. Well, he was evidently bound and determined to go, but as I mentioned, you and I both heard all that talk that maybe Ernie was doing something intentionally to get out of his contract, but it was one of those things that nobody would actually confirm at the time. So you couldn't really write it. Right. But the engine blew at Michigan and Ernie finished 32nd. Then things kind of came to a head at Bristol where it was so important for Morgan McClure Motorsports to perform well. Ernie spun on the second of his two qualifying laps and he had to take a provisional to start 34th. At that time, that was dead last in the 34-car field. And then Ernie completed just 316 laps at Bristol before another engine blew. (laughs) (laughs) Something's going on, isn't it? Ah, well, it would surely seem like it. And again, I had always heard that maybe there was a little more to that story, but to hear Larry actually come out and say it was pretty extraordinary. Well, yeah, I agree. And it shows you, again, I'll repeat, it shows you how strongly Ernie wanted to get out of his contract and go to Robert Yates Racing. And I think by this time, Larry realized something. If Ernie didn't want to be there, Larry wasn't going to keep him there. That's for sure. Steve, what did you think of Morgan McClure's choice to replace Ernie with Sterling Marlin? Everybody liked Sterling. The media liked Sterling. He was one of the most popular guys in the garage area. Funny and easygoing, hard to rile. Uh, I thought it was a very good choice. Now, he hadn't done a whole lot up to that point, but I thought, as well as others, that he might be able to do something here because the Morgan McClure car was already a winner. And now Sterling was in a situation where he could be a part of that winner. Well, I'm like you, Steve. You cannot not like Sterling Marlin personally. He is the very definition of a salt-of-the-earth guy. However, as you mentioned, when the Winston Cup season started, he had made 278 starts without a win. So I think people at the time kind of saw it maybe as a lateral move at best. Well, perhaps, perhaps. Um, uh, I would agree with that, except for the fact that Morgan McClure's team had been a winner. Now, you look at it that way and say, hey, Sterling is now with a winning team. Not that he's going to win with that team. That's not a positive. But the potential was there, and Sterling definitely reached that potential with the team. It never ceases to amaze me how things shake out like they do so often in racing. Steve, how stinking cool was it that the finish of the 1994 Daytona 500 came down to Sterling Marlin and Ernie Irvin? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Hollywood wouldn't like this stuff, no. Larry did say that maybe he ought not to have felt at least a little bit of satisfaction over beating Ernie in that race, but he did just because of everything that had went down when Ernie left the team. He had to feel a sense of satisfaction. I mean, it's just logical. His new man beats his old man, and his old man really left a bitter feeling behind. So I think that Larry did have a good measure of satisfaction. 
Next came another win in the 1995 Daytona 500. And Steve, anybody that was there, that was my first Daytona 500 with Winston Cup seen as a full-time staff member. And the thing that stood out to me and anybody that was there that year was how that car sounded. I mean, it sounded just like a jet engine. And everybody noticed that. And everybody came to the conclusion that that engine in Sterling's car had the advantage on everybody else's. Oh, I think it was Ron Pittman who was building engines up there. And they thought he had come on to something when it came to Daytona because it just did not sound like your normal stock car. Not at all. Well, I thought it was funny because Larry McClure did mention the fact that there were photographers with long-range telephoto lenses trying to get a shot of what was taking place underneath the race car. (laughs) 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 So you had a lot of spy versus spy stuff going on at the time. Yeah, there's some of us walking through the garage area, and all of a sudden we just sort of bend down in front of that Morgan McClure car. Not that we could see anything when we did that, Rick, but we wanted to let that team know we knew something was up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he did say that it was something having to do with the exhaust system and just the way that thing sounded. I will never forget that sound. I mean, it sounded just like a jet fighter going around that racetrack. You heard that whoosh type of sound. And it ran just like a jet fighter that year. (laughs) Absolutely. As good as things were in 1995, that was probably the heyday of that race team. I think they won three races. I think they won Daytona. I think they won at Darlington. And I think Talladega, one of the Talladegas that year, they were third in points. So that was the heyday. But then just two years later, there is this huge drop off in results and things didn't look good. Tony Glover left in 1996. And of course, Tony was the longtime crew chief there. And Sterling moved the following year in 1997. And both of those guys went to Sabco Racing. And just from the tone of Larry's voice, it didn't sound like there was a whole lot of love lost there between Larry and Felix Sabatis. Not going to be much when you lose your driver and your crew chief in the space of two years, but you can't really fault Tony and Sterling because the results were not there and they saw an opportunity to bed themselves by going with Felix Sabatis at Sapco. Finally, here's a little bit of behind the scenes stuff from the Scene Vault podcast. As I mentioned in the first episode, that featured Larry McClure, Jamie Bishop, who is one of our longtime friends here at the podcast, longtime crew member for a number of different race teams, including Morgan McClure Motorsports. But Jamie helped me track down some contact information for Larry. And when Jamie got back to me, he said that Larry just wanted to talk about racing. He just wanted to talk about the positive stuff. And I knew immediately what he was getting at. And not that I had to cajole or or chase this conversation or chase this interview, but I knew what he was talking about. Right. Back in April of 2009, Larry was actually sentenced to 18 months in federal prison for pleading guilty to five counts of filing a false income tax return, obstructing the investigation and lying to IRS investigators. So, I did call Larry and I told him that if he just wanted to talk about racing, that was fine with me, 
But we did talk about the fact that the journalist in me would always want to know about that experience and how he managed to go through something like that and come out the other side. And I did go up to Abingdon and I did do the interview. And at the very end, I asked him if he would feel comfortable talking about that season of his life. And Steve, everybody heard the result. He did address it. Still, though, I did make sure to ask all my questions that I didn't think he would have a problem with first. So that way, if he did get mad about me asking about his jail time and refused to talk anymore, we'd still have something to go on. <laughs> <laughs> but Larry did come and talk about his jail time and talked about the experience that he went through. And, you know, I really respect him for doing that because he accomplished at least a couple of things. Number one, he didn't hide anything from an interview that he knew he had to know you were going to touch on that and didn't run away from it. And uh, number two, I think that speaking about it like he did really earns him respect from our listeners that he didn't dodge a bad portion of his life. And in the end, that was the right thing to do. I think he said that he did wind up serving, I think he said 15 months. To go through that and to come out the other side, as I mentioned, I think speaks volumes to the fact that he learned from his mistakes. Obviously, he doesn't have the race team anymore, but we met there at the shop that used to house that race team. He still has a just, Steve, he has a gorgeous, a gorgeous collection of vintage cars and trucks and, I mean, just some amazing vehicles. His relationship with his wife is still intact, so they're still married. And they have gone through that, and he is Larry McClure again. And to be honest with you, it was like we were long-lost friends. And I thought that was a very cool experience. I agree with you on that, Rick. What happened between you and Larry talking about this is as it should be. Because, as I said earlier, by revealing the truth about the situation, Larry McClure uh, has come out a better man for it. And I think the listeners will appreciate him for it. I do. Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. Steve, this week, our friend Brian posted some amazing Alan Quickie stuff. I saw that. I saw that. I'd never seen those T-shirts before. I'm going to give Brian a call. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah. Alan Quickie t-shirts from his championship featuring his championship seasons and just some amazing stuff. So you can check all that out by following Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens. And you can also check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. That's SpeedwayTSJ.ETSY.com. Steve, the September 9th, 1993 issue of Winston Cup Scene covered that year's Southern 500 at Darlington. And that year's edition of the Southern 500 was delayed 
three hours by rain. And because it was delayed and because the track had no lights at the time, it was shortened to 351 laps, 16 laps short of the full distance. Now, that did not stop Mark Martin. (laughs) No. uh -uh. (laughs) That didn't even slow him down. There was a 10-lap sprint to the finish after NASCAR announced that the race would be shortened, and he was able to hold off Brett Bodine at the finish for the win. I think the margin of victory was a little over a second. So, right, why? Yeah. Yeah. After the green flag, uh, yeah, Mark was gone. He was checked out. But as we mentioned in the intro, this wasn't just another win for Mark. It was his fourth straight Winston Cup victory. Mark said in the race lead, it's like we can do no wrong right now. It really, really is a dream come true. I didn't think we could possibly beat the odds today, but whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Coming into that race, he had already won at the Glen, Michigan, and Bristol. Yes. So he, now he wins his fourth in a row. Uh, Rick, if I'm correct, uh, he was the third driver since the 1991 season to win four races in a row. Harry Gant did it in 91, Bill Elliott in 92, and now here comes Mark in 93. Now, the 90s <laughs> were very productive for a few guys at that time. Not only was Mark being productive in Winston Cup, he was also being productive in Bush Series, just like Harry Gant had been in 1991. Mark also won Darlington's Bush Series race the day before the Southern 500. He had also won his previous Bush Series start at Michigan. And then after Darlington, he would reel off wins in his next three Bush Series starts. So that gave him five wins in five starts in the Bush Series late that season. As you well know, Mark Barton was the driver to beat in the Bush Series for a long, long time. Rick, I'm not sure how many Bush Series races he won in his career. I'm sure you know. But until Kyle Bush came along, Mark Martin was the absolute king of the Bush Series. Well, as I mentioned when we talked to Steve Mill, I actually had a Mark Martin Bush Series win race lead template. <laughs> <laughs> I said Mark Martin won today's race by dot, dot, dot seconds and led dot, dot, dot laps en route to his dot, dot, dot consecutive win in this year's Bush Series. <laughs> that, was, that was a pretty smart thing to do at the time. <laughs> the thing about that, though, is – The Southern 500 was one of the Winston Million races, and in 1993, each of the four races in that program had a different winner. Dale Jarrett won the Daytona 500. Ernie Irvin won the Winston 500 at Talladega. Dale Earnhardt won the Coca-Cola 600 at Charlotte. And Mark Martin won the Southern 500. So, yeah, Mark was on a hot streak late that season, but also it seemed to be a little bit of parody that year because you had different drivers winning the sport's biggest races. Well, these four different winners in four of NASCAR's biggest races is exactly what NASCAR is looking for in its competition. Now, I admit it probably be, I admit they would probably be more exciting if we had a guy going for the Winston Million. There's a lot of drama there. But having four different drivers win four different races, big races, like I said, is exactly what NASCAR was trying to be all about, parity. But there was one thing 
there wasn't so much parity at the time. And I think you know what it was. One guy leading the point standings by a hefty margin after the Southern 500. <laughs> well, as you mentioned, going into this race, Dell Earnhardt held a razor-thin margin <laughs> <laughs> of just 309 points over Rusty Wallace in the Winston Cup standings. And that was despite the fact. That was the season that Rusty Wallace and Buddy Parrott and Penske Racing just put on one heck of a whooping. At this point, I think they had already won five races and had been very dominant in those five races, and they would go on to win a total of 10 that year. Right. But because he had fallen out of some races, that was the year that he had wrecked so badly in the Daytona 500. Right. He wrecked so badly at Talladega. When I talked to him a year or so ago, he said that he drove hurt after that because he had the pin in his wrist where he broke his wrist at Talladega. So that was hampering him. But even though Dell had not won as many races, he had been more consistent in finishing. And the points pay consistency. That's exactly what they do. Because of that lead of just 309 points going into Darlington, there was talk that Earnhardt and RCR would put it on cruise control and stroke their way to the championship. But anybody who thought that, Steve. Yeah, right. <laughs> didn't understand Dell Earnhardt and Richard Childress racing very well. <laughs> he drove his fanny off in that Southern 500. <laughs> Dale had a really good battle for the lead with Ernie Irvin, who was driving for Morgan McClure. No, wait, no, that's not right. <laughs> he was driving his very first race for Robert Yates Racing at Darlington. That was early in the race, and then with five laps to go, he tried to get under Brett Bodine for second place, but in doing so, he got into the wall a little bit, and he did wind up finishing fourth behind Mark, Brett, and Rusty. So, he was, Yeah, he wasn't overly happy with Brett either. He said in the sidebar, the 26 was spewing out water. We tried to run under him, and we were getting a little loose. Then I tried to go to the outside and got into the water a little bit. I was just trying to go for it. That's what it's all about. We were getting down to the last little bit, and I was trying to get under him. We were getting down to the last little bit. The dinner bell was about to ring. Yeah. And and Dale Earnhardt wanted to eat. (laughs) That's exactly right. And Dale, the reason he was not happy with Brett, because of the water leak. He said also after the race that he thought Brett should not have been on the track. But, uh, you know, I'm not too sure about that. But that was his feelings. Well, I'm not going to give up second place unless there's a really, really, really good reason to do so. Um, that's, a, that's a very good explanation of why Brett was doing what he, he was doing on track. Who finished fifth in this event? <laughs> Ernie Irvin. That's right. There have been countless driver changes over the years. Obviously, drivers change seats every year. But I don't know that many have had the kinds of reverberations throughout the sport that this one did. Deb wrote the news story on Ernie's move, and she mentioned Daryl Waltrip moving over from Die Guard to Junior Johnson. She mentioned Richard Petty leaving Petty Enterprises for curb racing. She wrote about Bobby Allison leaving Die Guard midway through the 1985 season. So, yeah, there had been some big driver moves over the years. But Ernie Irvin picking up and leaving Morgan McClure Motorsports the way that he did and as controversial as it was, 
with everything that had gone on at Morgan McClure, they had reached a point of no return. And 15 minutes before the first practice at Darlington, the deal was finally done. And Steve, that set off a chain of dominoes. You know, Rick, I think one of the things, uh, and I've said this before, one of the things that maybe made this such a, a pivotal driver team change was the fact that Ernie, even though he was a Daytona 500 winner and done well with Morgan McClure, he just was not the man people expected to go to Robert Yates racing. But clearly, Robert saw something in him that he wanted. And it turned out to be a pretty good thing. Ernie was headed to Robert Yates Racing, where Lake Speed had been driving. And the night before the first practice, Lake had signed to drive for Bud Moore, beginning at Dover, with Jeff Bodine headed over to the team that he had bought from the estate of Alan Quickie. Jeff Purvis drove for Morgan McClure at Darlington. And Jeff and Joe Nemechek filled out the rest of the season in the four car, the Morgan McClure Motorsports car, before Sterling Marlin came on in 1995. So Robert Yates, according to Deb's story, never talked to any of the attorneys involved. So the whole thing had to be basically hashed out between Morgan McClure, Ernie, and their lawyers. And according to Deb's story, Ernie's settlement cost him $400,000. Now that really proves you want to get out of the ride, doesn't it? When, it, when you're talking about that kind of money. But that's not the first time a driver had to buy his way out of a contract. Well, I don't know that Daryl Waltrip should fuss too much about having to pay $300,000 to get out of his contract with Daigo. (laughs) (laughs) $300,000, Yeah, it's just pocket change to those guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Larry McClure said in Deb's story, we just had to do the right thing, and that was to terminate that relationship. We made the break to take ourselves out of a negative situation and put ourselves in a positive one. Larry had no choice. It goes back to what I said. If a driver didn't want to be with him, well, he needs to get rid of that driver, which is what he did, because that driver was costing him money. All right. (laughs) I talked about the steering wheel and the clutch. Yes, sir. Oh, well, was Larry just going to sit there and let Ernie continue to do that kind of stuff? No. So they had to terminate the relationship, at least by getting $400,000 out of Ernie. He got something back for all the expense Ernie had cost him. Robert Yates Racing's hauler still had Davey's name on it at Darlington, and there was no name on the race car. Ernie wore a plain black uniform at Darlington, and he said in this story, I'm not trying to get anybody to forget about him. I'm just here to do a job for Robert Yates Racing. And that's the best thing he could have said, by all means, because David, of course, had an army of fans. I don't know how pleased they were that Ernie was back in the Robert Yates car. But by seeing what he did, he made it perfectly clear that he was not about to make any of them forget their man. Steve, I think in this rare case, I think that this was a move that actually worked out for both sides. I think Morgan McClure Motorsports got a driver that was suited to their style, that was suited to their way of competition. Sterling was good on super speedways, and Morgan McClure was certainly good on super speedways as well. I think his personality fit in well with that race team. 
And then when Ernie went to Robert Yates Racing, there's no denying that until he got hurt at Michigan, they were doing very well right. because Ernie won at Martinsville later that 1993 season. He also dominated at Charlotte. And going into Michigan, he was, what, 26 points behind Dell Earnhardt for the Winston Cup championship. And I, I got to say that if Ernie does not get hurt, he has a really, really, really good shot at winning that championship. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. In the end, in the end, as you said, the move was good for both teams, at least for a couple of seasons. Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy Maines. You're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Big news, Steve. Weekly accountability update. I now stand at 4,905.64 miles, which leaves me 94.36 miles to go before I hit 5,000. So, Steve, I now have less than 100 miles to go. That light at the end of the tunnel, Rick, is getting bigger. You're headed that way. Steve, I don't want to talk about lights at the end of the tunnel anymore because the last time we mentioned that, that week, I almost got hit by an oncoming car. So let's not talk about any more lights. <laughs> okay, no more tunnels. <laughs> let's just say that your goal is not a bridge too far. <laughs> Steve, my goal is to finish up and get to 5,000 by, if not on, Saturday, September the 19th, which would be the day of the Bristol night race. So I'm looking forward to that. You're going to make it, Rick. Four different winners in the four of the biggest races of the season is exactly. If you heard Otis barking from outside, you'd think he was the most terrifying pit bull ever. <laughs> and he's nothing but a ball of fluff.